whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Thank you, Joy. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's Word? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pause now, and as we see, as you said here, he, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. It's easy for us to be in a state of distraction or just disconnected, distant, and to come to your word and for it to just pass in one ear and out the other, to just go over our heads. But I pray that you would give, give each and every one of us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning, that we would be your disciples that we would know what that means and that you would, we would follow you with all of our life. Would you come and work in us by your Spirit? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, here's a question for you. Have you ever started something, gotten into something, and then after you got into it, you realized it was a lot harder than you thought it was going to be? Have you ever had that experience? What, what is one of those? What's that? What is it? Oh, your, his mind went blank. Okay, yeah, I was trying to think. Uh, well, you know that experience, right? You, you, you see something, you know, maybe it's a, a sport you want to play, maybe it's some project or something you want to build, and you think about it and you're like, man, I'm so excited about that, I'm just going to jump right in, and you never bother to sit down and say, wait a minute, let me think about what this is going to cost. What is this going to actually be like? How much work is going to be required in this? I'm kind of notorious for doing this. I, I, I get a, I'll get a wild hair, I'll get an idea, I'll get something I want to do, and I just jump right in, and I realize pretty quick, oh my gosh, I had no idea what this was going to cost, what was entailed in this. I remember I built a tree house, and I figured, you know, a couple days I had this thing knocked out, six months later I'm finishing it. And I'm like, holy cow, that was so much harder than I thought. There's so many things in life that can be like that. That we can have a certain idea going into it, and we never bother to take that time to sit down and say, now let me just really think about what is this going to cost? What kind of time is this going to require? What kind of money is this going to require? It's counting the cost. 
right? That's part of why we're so incredibly busy in life, because we say yes to things that we never sit down and think about, hey, wait a minute, can I actually do this? Is this going to dominate my life? We don't, we don't do that very much. Now, here's another challenge that we face. We're in a culture that is all about immediate gratification, and it's a very consumeristic culture. We talk a lot about that. It's very important to understand that, that we are in a culture that is always selling us something. And if you know how you make a sale on something, it's really very simple. How do you sell? How do you make a sale? Well, what you want to do if you're trying to make a sale, and this is just free advice here, you want to really play up the benefits, and you want to make sure those benefits seem that they're going to be really immediate, and you want to downplay the cost. That's what you do when you make a sale, right? A friend of mine loves to tell the story, he's actually a pastor, but he loves to tell the story about when he was a young man, and he's going, he's like, hey, I'm going to go buy my first car, and he goes to the you know, he goes to the car lot, and he's looking around, he sees this car that really captures, you know, his heart, and he's getting excited about it, and the, and the salesman's sitting there and working him over, and, he, and uh, he said, so we ready to do it? And he said, I don't know, I'm just kind of thinking, you know, can I afford this? And that guy kind of got a look, and he goes, buddy, don't, don't think about that, just jump right in, right? I'm like, well, at least he was honest, Right? We're always being told that. The other day I was sitting, we're watching TV with the boys, and some commercial came out. I can't remember exactly what it was. But, of course, it was promising something with very little cost at all. And, and I think it was Wynn turned around to me and said, Dad, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And I'm like, no, what they're not telling you is this, this, and this. And we just kind of intuitively learn that in living in this society that we live in that we're always being sold something, that the cost is being minimized, that it's not going to really pan out the way that we often think it is whenever it's being sold in that way. Here's one of the real challenges of being a Christian in America, is that whole consumeristic mindset becomes our lens for Christianity. That, that's many times the way that people get into Christianity is because it was sold to them in that way. That, that the benefits were, were played up and they're immediate and the cost was downplayed. And so we think that Christianity is something that doesn't really cost that much. It's something that's easy. It's something that, yeah, I mean, you'd be a fool not to take this and just jump right in. All you've got to do is just walk an aisle or pray a prayer. You know, we minimize it. We, we, we uh, sell cheap grace to people. And so people get into the Christian life and then once they begin to see how hard and challenging that is, they're out. Eugene Peterson says, you know, in our culture, it's not very hard to get people excited about Christianity. It's incredibly different, difficult, incredibly difficult to sustain the interest. We have a dreadful retention rate. That's what Eugene Peterson was talking about, American Christianity. I think he's right. We fail to count the cost. We fail to, to even see it or even consider it. And I think it, it, it leads so many people astray in our culture as we come to Christianity. We've been in a series here, we're going through the book of Luke, and we're talking about discipleship. And we've been talking about how that's, that's different from how we normally think, again, in our culture. We tend to think that Christi- Christianity is something that's really all about a decision you make or 
something you do at the very beginning of the Christian life, and then you're good, you know, you get your fire insurance, and, and really all of the emphasis is placed upon the beginning of the Christian life, an initial decision. But as we come to the Scriptures, we see that's not the emphasis at all. The emphasis is on discipleship. That is, learning to be an apprentice of Jesus, learning to become like Jesus, in relationship with Jesus. And so that's what we've been talking about week in, week out as we've gone through the book of Luke. Here's what we're going to see in our passage today. We're going to see this, this question, this answer for us, what is the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? What does it cost? What does it cost you in your life? That's what we'll see. So let's jump in together. We see in verse 25 here, right off the bat, Luke again, he mentions and sets the scene of this, these crowds that were following Jesus. Look at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, and then it goes into what he's going to say here. So he's wanting to set this up, and to give you kind of a sense of why Jesus is saying this, Who he's saying it to? One of the things we see over and over in all of the Gospels, in Luke as well, is we see that that the crowds were just crazy about Jesus, especially at the beginning of his ministry. That that people were flocking to Jesus. They had seen the miracles that he did. There was a buzz going around. Hey, there's a new religious leader on the scene. He's doing really cool stuff. He seems to have a lot of power. The way that he speaks is very unique. And so he developed a pretty big following right off the bat. And so people were excited. There was a buzz. It was going viral. People were coming around all the time. Now, the disciples of Jesus who were with Jesus, you know, they're kind of his, you know, campaign staff there. They get really excited about the crowds because they're like us. Crowds feel real. It feels exciting. You know, if a lot of people are into something, it's like, hey, there must be something to that. That that must be really be significant. There must really be something there. You know, whenever we see big crowds gathering or a lot of excitement or a lot of buzz, something that's popular to us really tends to, tends to like be real and genuine. And so they, were, they just loved the crowds. But Jesus was incredibly different. He was skeptical of the crowds. He knew that their, their interest and their enthusiasm, it was fickle. It would fade. He knew that their response wasn't truly about him, but because of an expectation they were developing about who he was, they didn't understand who he was. And even as he would speak very truthfully to who he was, they just wouldn't get it. They just, they were taken in by the crowd and they weren't able to really hear what he was saying. And so Jesus would often say these really challenging things as a way to get them to understand the cost. Now just imagine... You know, he says some pretty, pretty radical things here. We're going to dive into that in a second. But just imagine if there was a politician who's making his, way, his rounds. Say we have a politician come to town. Maybe he's running for president, okay? Imagine a, a politician is going around and his, in his stump speech, he gets up and he says, Hey, listen, I'm so excited you're here. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to fix this whole thing, but it's going to be really hard. We're going to have to sacrifice You might even lose your homes. I'm going to have to raise taxes. We're going to have to do some really hard things, and it's really going to cost us. It's going to cost everybody here, but that's what it's going to take in order to fix everything. So who's with me? Right? Yeah. 
We, we might actually be shocked that a politician would say that. I might actually vote for him if he was just truthful. But we intuitively know no politician's ever going to say that because they know I would not get elected. Because what do we all want to hear? I'm going to make everything great again and it's not going to cost you anything. I'm going to do it all. Just trust in me. You know, and so we, we flock to that. We love that, right? So Jesus is very different from our politicians. He wanted at the very front end to say, wait a minute, before you get into this thing, I need you to understand what I'm talking about. I need you to understand what this is going to cost you. He tells these two parables here about, you know, just how no one would sit there and try to build something without first sitting down and thinking about, hey, do I have what it takes to complete this? No, but no king would go into war not yet sitting down and thinking, okay, what do I have? What, how big of an army do I have? How big is this other army? I mean, you've got to count the cost. It just makes sense. And Jesus is saying, before you jump into this thing, I need you to really think about what you're signing up for here. And so, what he does is he tells us what is the cost. I think this is so important, especially for us, for Christians in America. Especially in the Bible Belt. Because we have so minimized the cost. I mean, we've just made it just like all you, all you got to do is believe certain things or do a couple religious things in your life or or uh, incorporate things into your life, avoid certain things, prayer, prayer, walking out. I keep saying it over and over because that's the, the air that we're breathing here. And we fail to really understand what does it cost to follow Jesus. So what does he say it costs? Now just get the weight of these words. We're just going to look at three phrases that he says here. And they are Shocking. Just, just think about this for a minute. Here's what he says, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children. Wait a minute, he said children? Yes. His wife and children, his brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a hard saying, isn't it? not the kind of thing you say whenever you want the crowds to just keep coming. But he said it. What does Jesus mean by this? Does Jesus really mean that we should hate our father, mother, children, wife? No. He's using hyperbole here, which is a figure of speech. It's an exaggeration to communicate truth. Jesus very clearly teaches in every other place that we are to love. That's our calling, to love, to love our enemies, yes, and even our mother and father, our spouse, those things that are very natural for us to love. He's not literally saying, I want you to hate these people, so what is he saying? What is he communicating? Jesus is saying that your love for me must be so much greater than your love for anyone or anything else in your life that by comparison, it looks like hate. You get that? Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to be my disciple, and this is the heart of it, 
you've got to love me infinitely more than you love anything else in your life. I've got to be number one. I've got to come before everything else. I've got to be number one. I can have no rivals in your life. I've got to be the most important thing in your life or else you can't be my disciple. Now, I think initially whenever we hear that, we're like, yeah, of course I love Jesus. Who doesn't love Jesus here in the South? The, the question is, would people know that from your life? Can you look at your, and this always tells our priorities in our life, can you, can you look at your, your use of money, your use of time? Can you look at the affections of your heart? Can you look at those things and do they tell that same story? Do the people around you, by looking at your life, would they say, you know what? They love Jesus more than they love anything else in their life. See, we've got to do that kind of work to, to really get it down because we just intuitively say, well, yeah, of course I love Jesus. Do you feel the weight and the challenge of what he's saying? Next phrase, very similar. Here's what he says, verse 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So what does he mean by this? Well, they knew what a cross was. We know what a cross is. We wear them around our neck. But for them, a cross was very different. The cross was a symbol of execution and torture and suffering. They knew very well that what it meant to carry a cross. When you carry a cross, that means that you are headed to die. So what does Jesus mean? That if you want to follow me, you've got to carry your cross. He essentially means you've got to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in The Cost of Discipleship, he says when when Jesus calls a man, a person, he bids him come and die. The essence of discipleship. Does he mean that you literally have to die? In some cases, yes, for most of the disciples, they would give up their life for Jesus. And it certainly means that. Are you willing to give up your life for Jesus? Are you willing to die for your belief and trust in Jesus? It's a great question. But it's certainly for every single person, whether or not it actually costs you your life, the question is, will you die to yourself? It's essentially what it means. It means all of your priorities, all of your plans, all of of your um, control of your life, that you die to that, that you surrender it, that you give it over to Jesus. That's what it means to be His disciple. And, And to follow Jesus is to follow Him in the way of the cross. I mean, Jesus was the one who carried His cross to the place of execution. It's, it's the description of his life and his ministry. It was a life of suffering. It was a life of, of laying down his life in love for others. It was a life of sacrifice. It was a life of crucifixion. That is the way of Jesus. And it is by that way that we know life. The only way for Jesus to bring life is to first die. And you see, sometimes I think we think, especially in American Christianity, okay, Great, so Jesus died so I don't have to. 
Jesus went to the cross so that, so that I don't have to worry about all of that. And that's not what Jesus teaches. He says, no, no, no. If you want to follow me, you're going to follow me into the cross. My cross will become your cross. And to follow me means to walk in the way of surrender and suffering and crucifixion. To follow me means you die. You die to control of your life. You die to all of your plans and all of your priorities and you give it all up to me. There's a third statement here, verse 33, down at the end. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If he hadn't already pushed it to the ends here. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to give up everything you have. Now again, does he literally mean... That we should all sell everything we have and become homeless. No, he doesn't mean that. Many people he does not call to do that. On certain occasions, he actually did. And it was because particularly their hope was in the stuff that they had. So what does he mean by this? What does he mean? What does it mean to give up everything you have? It means to release control of everything you have. To surrender it all. Everything that I have is yours. I, I give it up to you. It's not mine anymore. Even my very own life doesn't belong to me. Everything that I have belongs to you. I think this is an incredible shocker for us, for American Christians, because what we, I think, just intuitively think is that you can come to Jesus and you can have your life and Jesus too. In other words, you can, you, can, you can live your best life, you can have a great life, you can live for, for your, your house, you can live for your hobbies, you can live for your vacations, you can live for the success of your children, you can live for your health, you can live for your appearance and reputation. We can live for all of those things that the world lives for. That's what this world is living for. You understand that, right? I mean, go watch every commercial. It, it is selling us life in all of those things. So I think intuitively we think, okay, I can live for all of those things, yes, and have Jesus too. I can add Him onto my life, right? In fact, having Jesus in my life actually enhances those things. You know, that explicit teaching is called the prosperity gospel, but it is not just something that's taught in certain places. It's everywhere in American Christianity. It's in here. It's in here. It's in us. This idea that I can have the world in Jesus too. That I can pursue life and all these things. That I can really be living for that and have Jesus in my life. And actually he's going to bless me and enhance all these other areas of my life. Hashtag blessed. Right? That's what we intuitively think. You see what Jesus is saying here? You cannot have me and the world. It's impossible. You've got to choose. If you have the world, you cannot have me. Did you notice what he said in, at the end of each one of these statements? He didn't just say, hey, if you really want to be a super Christian, if you really want to be an awesome disciple, if you really want to be one of those serious ones, you know, that higher level, then you need to, you need to do this, right? But, you know, if you're just ordinary, if you just like say, you know, I'm good, just kind of chilling kind of halfway, he didn't say, oh, that's fine, but if you want to go to the next level, you've got to do this. Did you notice what he said in each statement? If you do not do this, you cannot be my disciple. 
In other words, there's no way. There's no way to be a disciple of Jesus unless you love Him more than everything in your life. Even your children. There's no way to be a disciple of Jesus unless you give up everything you have. There's no way. You cannot go halfway with Jesus. I understand this is so odd to get, to even understand for us. I think we just so easily think of Jesus as being our Savior and not our Lord. That is that He can pay for my sins, but yet not be the owner and the ruler of my life, right? Because I want to be the ruler of my life. I think we naturally think, yeah, yeah, so... He, I let him save me. I let him pay for my sins, but I'm, I'm still going to be in control of my life. And just very clearly, Jesus is saying that will never work because I'm both. I am Savior and Lord. And if Jesus is not your Lord, your ruler, your King, he's not your Savior. Let me try to illustrate this because I know this is just so hard to get. I've told the story about this church in China that's been going, undergoing persecution. It's called Early Rain Covenant Church. We've talked about this a little bit in, in church here, but um, in, on December 9th of this past year, there's a church in Chengdu, China uh, called Early Rain Covenant Church. It's actually a Presbyterian church. Uh, it was planted in part by some friends of mine, some people that I know, but it's an entirely... Chinese church, about 500 members, large uh, home church movement in China. If you know anything about China, you know for the past 50 years, China has been undergoing the greatest revival in the history of Christianity. It's astonishing. But on December 9th of this past year, after their services, they leave their services and go home, and the Chinese authority... Uh, kicked off a wide-scale persecution on this church. Other churches as well, but particularly this church. And so they went home from services that day, and their homes were raided. They were arrested. They arrested about 100 members of the church that day, including the pastor, all of the elders, all of the officers, many of the congregants. They're still in prison, many of them to this day. And all in all, 200 members of this church have been detained or arrested. Uh, They've been beaten. They've had stuff that they have taken. Uh, Families have been separated from husbands. Children have been separated from parents. I mean, there are mothers right now in prison, and they're not with their children and even infants. It's just amazing for us, where we sit, to even imagine this kind of thing going on. But what was astounding is that 48 hours after this arrest, a letter was released by the pastor, Wang Yi is his name, and he had written a letter in October to be released 48 hours after his arrest, which tells us he knew this was coming. In fact, not only did he know it was coming, the whole church knew it was coming because he had been teaching and preparing them for years, persecution is coming, and we are called to this, and he had been preparing them for this. And so it was released, and listen, I read this letter yesterday, and I was just cut to the heart. 
I, I watched a number of the sermons. They're actually, you know, just the wonders of Facebook. Their sermons are online. I watched their sermon from last Sunday. You know, there's other pastors who've come in and they're underground now. They have to hide in everything that they do. But the sermon was based on our persecution is our glory. This is our glory. This is what we've been called to. The pastor in his letter says, when I am arrested, here's what I'm going to say to them. You are bestowing glory and honor on me and I don't deserve it. Because I am a poor sinner. And yet you are giving me the privilege to share in the sufferings of Jesus. He's not sitting there saying, listen, what do I need to get released? What do I need to do? What, what, what do we need to change? What do you want us to do? They're, they're not responding in that way. They're not renouncing their faith. They're not saying, wait a minute, we've gone too far. We've gone too far here. How do we get back in our bounds? None of them are saying that. With great courage, they are testifying to the gospel of Jesus. And they are actually believing it is by our suffering that we will show the world that what they're living for is empty. It's utterly empty. And that there is a kingdom that is coming that is beyond this world and not of this world. And there's a king who is coming and he is greater than the Chinese authority. And one day this will become his kingdom and we're demonstrating that through our lives. And I'm reading this and I'm just like, I'm just struck with repentance. You know what I was struck with? Just how worldly my heart is. Just how attached to this world my heart is. How much I'm just so easily am living for my comfort and my security and my vacations and my hobbies. Just how small I would just move to repentance. I'm like, what? This is like from... And listen, they get up in their services and which primarily the New Testament was written from prison. You're just reading. It's amazing how much of this makes sense when you're actually in prison. And where he, he's literally saying to them, listen, Paul says, do not be discouraged by my chains. Do not lose heart because of my imprisonment. And then he says, here's what that means. Don't lose heart because our brothers and sisters are in prison right now. And I'm like, he didn't even have to do application there. It was just direct. Because they're living it. Do you see, they are normal. We're abnormal. In, in this just living for the things of this world. And, and we might not even think that we're doing that. But we are. How do we get here? How do you get into a place of domesticating Christianity so much that we are just living for the world and it's just so incredibly hard to lift a finger for Jesus? Like, isn't it just really hard to get to church sometimes? I mean, really hard, especially if like the sun's shining or if it's raining hard. Isn't it just really hard to gather in community? Isn't it just really hard to open your life to other believers? Isn't it really hard to give sacrificially? Isn't it really hard to share the gospel with other people? Why is that so hard for us? That's the ultimate question. Is the problem that they're just like, there's something in them that just makes them more... 
And the answer is no. Here's the problem. It is the wealth and security of our culture. That's what makes it so hard to be a Christian in America. You might not think it's hard to be a Christian in America. It's hard to be this kind of Christian in America. You get that? It's so hard to lose your life and give up everything. It's so hard to sacrifice and risk for your faith if you're so secure. Now, you might not think we're so secure. You know, here's the irony. We are the most wealthy, most secure, safest, most healthy culture in all of human history. Now, we don't think that because we are eaten up with fear and anxiety. Now, go figure on how that works. The more secure you get, the more anxious you are. And that's just the reality. We're terribly anxious even though we are so secure. You see, that is the biggest rival to Jesus in our hearts. It's our comfort. It's all the options of the things that we can do. It's all the hobbies that we can have and all the trips that we can take and all the, all the things that we can do to our house and all the options we have to do on a weekend. All of these things, it's our wealth and our comfort that woos our hearts away from Jesus. And so Jesus comes to us and He says, you've got to give up everything to follow Me. My, your love for Me has got to be infinitely more than your children. Get that one. You know these believers in early rain? They read that and they're like, boom, got it. Love Jesus, I'll give up anything. I'll give up my children for Him. Now that sounds harsh to us. But let me tell you this. The only way to really love your children is to love Jesus infinitely more. The only way to love your spouse is to love Jesus infinitely infinitely more than you love your spouse. And that works for every single thing in your life. That's what he's trying to say here. So here's the question, just in closing. What do we do? How do you get that? Because listen, it is hard to live in such ease and live this radical, this radical love for Jesus out. What do we do? What do we do with this? Here's what I'll say, not willpower. You don't get it by me like pumping you up and say, go do it, renounce everything else, because it just won't work. Here's the only way that it happens. You have got to treasure Jesus more than anything else. You've got to be falling more and more in love with His beauty, His power, His glory. You've got to really see in your heart that He is infinitely more valuable than any of the good things in this world. It's the only way. Jesus tells this great parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. And in his joy, goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. That is a beautiful picture of how this works. You see, when you come to discover Jesus is the ultimate treasure, then giving your life up is not like some great sacrifice. It makes perfect sense. You just naturally do it in your joy whenever you're like, Jesus is the treasure. I'll give up everything for Him. It is in your joy that we give up our life for Jesus when we see the treasure that He is. And that's what's got to happen. 
in the face of all of these things that are competing for our affections, we have got to be a people who are just seeing regularly that the value and the glory and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus eclipses every created thing. So how do you get there? How do you do that? Let me just tell you two things to do. One, repent. That's where you start. Go to Jesus and say, I love this more than you, and this more than you, and this more than you. That's my heart. That's just what's true. That's repentance. Going to Him and saying, Jesus, there are so many things that my heart treasures more than you. Would you heal me? Would you wash me? Would you open my eyes to see and behold your treasure? That's repentance right there. That is a prayer he will answer because it is in accordance with his will. And then secondly, do this. Seek his face. We've talked a lot about in discipleship that it's about, it's about these disciplines in our life where we are pursuing him, where we are in Scripture daily, that we're taking Scripture into our hearts, that it's, it's just being implanted into our hearts, that, that we are in fellowship together, that we're in worship together, that we're taking communion together. All of those things are ways of seeking His face. The goal in those things is not just to do these duties so that we've done enough for Jesus. All of those things are avenues by which our heart would come to treasure Him. And that's the goal. So repent of all the things that are more precious in your heart than Jesus and seek His face. And let me tell you this, no matter where you are with Jesus, no matter if you're like, man, I'm just scratching the surface, or if you're like, I've been walking with Him for so many years, no matter where you are, let me just tell you this, there is more of Jesus to see and experience than you could ever imagine. It's the well that you never find the bottom of. There's always more glory. There's always more intimacy. There's always more beauty and more love and more grace and more truth and more majesty about Him to discover than you have ever tasted before. And that's the joy of it. Nothing else in your life is like that. Nothing else in your life will die for you. Nothing else in your life will love you when you're at your worst. Nothing else in your life has created and sustains all things but Jesus. He is not a means to an end. He's not a way to get heaven. He is heaven. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. So go after treasuring Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, even as I say these things, I just feel in my own heart the pull and the tug and the allurement of this world. It so easily captures my heart, but I long for you to be my treasure because that is life, that is joy, that is satisfaction, that is fulfillment. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, break the power that all these things in our life have over us? Break the power. Let us see your ultimate value and glory. That we would be a people who are seeking your face. 
and who love you infinitely more than we love anything else in our life, would you do this in us by your grace and by your power because we are powerless to bring this about. Do this for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.